Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Here we go here. There's like last minute conversations going on and we try to make sure we know what we're talking about. Although when has that ever stopped us here on the news? Uh, we're going to be talking today in the second segment today. We'll be talking about um, the new installment. I don't know exactly what to call it, but uh, there is uh, after 35 years, another Blade Runner movie. I guess that's how, what I should say. Uh, we'll talk about that. We all went to see it. Uh, and uh, towards the end of the show, we're going to make some recommendations uh, to you for other things. Uh, but we're going to begin with some conversations which essentially revisit some things we've talked about on previous episodes of The News. The uh, situation in which Jamel Hill, a broadcaster at ESPN, finds herself uh, and the ongoing coverage of the Harvey Weinstein uh, mess and the concomitant banning of actress Rose McGowan for 12 hours from Twitter. Um, So to do all that, we have assembled um, three replicants. No, they're not replicants. Uh, Rand Richards Cooper is a novelist, essayist, and critic. He writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. Kate Russian is a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. Uh, And Pedro Soto is chief operating officer at Spacecraft Manufacturing uh, in New Haven. So I th- we think – so, Rand, we think we can smush all these things together or at least I think you in our email correspondences felt that all these things can go together. But maybe we, we need to sort of separate them out at first. Um, so let's begin with Jamel, Jamel Hill. Jamel Hill uh, is an ESPN anchor. Uh, she had become somewhat controversial weeks ago by, among other things, calling President Donald Trump a white supremacist. Um, and now she has been suspended from her job. Um, because she called for a boycott of the sponsors associated with the Dallas Cowboys after the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, uh, essentially said that he would uh, fire or bench or do something about it anyway, anybody who uh, from now on knelt uh, during the national anthem, despite the fact that Jerry Jones had previously stood with his arms locked with his players and done all that kind of solidarity stuff that was so much in vogue about two weeks ago. Um, so um, so I guess we'll start there. Uh, and Rand, I already called your name, so you, you, you can begin. Um, I know that you feel as though this puts ESPN in kind of an interesting bind where they, they have to lose face with somebody. Yeah, I think it's it's um, it's an interesting situation because we see roles and expectations that are kind of changing before our very eyes. There's always been a default expectation that certain things will be left out of uh, sports journalism and of journalism generally. One one context in which we could put this is the increasingly partisan nature. Of, of journalism. I mean, that's that's one frame for this uh, for this discussion. Um, are journalists going to be allowed and even expected to bring into uh, their coverage of events, whether they're political journalists or or even now sports journalists, uh, their own take, their their own tilt? Is there anything wrong with that? Uh, aside from possibly annoying sponsors uh, and employers, the other questions that interest me are the role and uh, and the meaning. Of social media, in uh, insofar as they relate to 
our jobs uh, and uh, and ourselves. Is that is your social is your Twitter account is your Facebook a sort of arena of your private opinion that you can maintain separate from your job? Um, what if what if you're out there more or less representing yourself in your job capacity? More specifically, Colin, to your to your point, I do think that. ESPN and the sponsors and the team owners do find themselves between a rock and a hard place. And I guess you could say the rock is uh, concerned, ultimately, these are businesses about alienating um, sponsors. But on the other hand, you've got a highly politicized and active and also divided group of people who watch sports who are out there on Twitter all the time. If they fire Jamel, if they fire Jamel Hill, there's going to be an enormous backlash. But if they do nothing, then they seem to be giving tacit approval to what constitutes a real game-changing moment for the politicization of sports. And you know what? There's a backlash against that. Rock in a hard place. Well, I mean, Kate, they seem very confused. They've seemed very confused all along. They were so confused by the events in Charlottesville that they uh, diverted an Asian-American football uh, play-by-play guy named Robert Lee. <laughs> From the from the Virginia game, feeling that that would be incendiary. I mean, they seem not to know what's incendiary and what's not. This just maybe isn't something that their skill set uh, was built for. That was not a great move to uh, remove that uh, that sportscaster. But I have to say, speaking from my heart, um, I I don't say that Jamel Hill didn't have the right to write what she wrote. But what I what I would want to ask uh, Jamel Hill is, like, didn't she notice how many ESPN staff and broadcasters have been laid off and fired over the past uh, chunk of time? And, um, you know, does she remember how long it took undefeated to get to the air? And maybe she does not remember... Uh, when uh, Oprah was actually sued by the Texas cattle ranchers in 98. And it's the cowboys. Maybe it would have just been better just to hang back a little bit and not even bring put herself in this situation by calling names, even though I I think she asked people who disagreed with the owner's position to perhaps consider a boycott. I don't think she actually called for a boycott, but I just, I I would like her to keep her job and I wish she hadn't put herself in this position. I think she's going to keep her job. And Pedro, we know that, yes, in fact, as Donald Trump likes to point out, um, ESPN does have a little bit of a kind of a subscription problem right now. I think it has more to do with the mechanics of cable than it does with any particular thing they're putting on the air. But all the same, we know that they've hired people like Jamel Hill and encouraged them to have an attitude. Um, I mean, as somebody who's been in a position like that, I can tell you what they do is they encourage you to have an attitude and to push the envelope. And then one day you do the wrong thing and they suspend you for two weeks. I mean, I don't know. What do you make of this? No, I, I think it is It is hard to, you, you know, they're kind of serving two sides. Um, I think that there's the, you know, generally sports, yay, rah, rapid in the flag, USA, you know, uh, thing. And then there's the kind of trying to push the boundaries and, and say messages with sports, you know, with Colin Kaepernick and really kind of supporting that. And ESPN's trying to, to kind of balance those two things and kind of carry both of them forward. And then at some point you kind of hit a breaking point. And I do feel that 
unfortunately, you know, the, the issue has been literally turned into a literal black and white issue. And I think that, um, you know, Jamel Hill was probably responding to that and maybe forcing it to just sort of s- speak to that, that it's it's not um, it's not about players disrespecting. It's about sort of, you know, the president literally telling, you know, a certain um, race that their form of protest is wrong. And I think that, you know, that's that's kind of being lost in the in the discussion. I think that's being lost in the picture. It's literally being turned into a, you know, you hate America um, issue. And, and I think she was probably responding a lot to that. Right. So she, yeah, she did a series of, of tweets about this. Um, and and I, I went back and looked on her Twitter account. And it was a little hard to, a little bit jumbled. But I think at one point she did use the word boycott. Uh, there were other tweets that were a little bit more like change happens when advertisers are impacted. If you strongly reject what Jerry Jones said, the key is his advertisers. But I'm pretty sure she did at one point use the word boycott. And, you know, Rand, one thing I said in the emails about this is, well, first of all, I would say I don't think she'd be suspended right now if she hadn't use the word boycott. My experience has been that, that your employers don't mind if you're controversial, if that's what they want you to be in the first place, don't mind you if you condemn things as wrong or evil. Uh, there's all kinds of things that they don't mind. But if you start to become the news, if you cause a thing to happen that would not have otherwise happened, you've sort of entered a different area. And then, of course, if you cause a thing to happen to a class of people known as advertisers, um, <laughs> you've got a, like a whole new set of problems. Well. The, it's always an interesting question for any institution. How much contradiction structurally can an institution contain within itself? Capitalism, the, the world of, of marketing, moving and selling products can sustain by preemption and absorption an enormous amount of structural contradiction. So it, will, it never can surprise you in America when today's dangerous protest emerges as tomorrow's commercial. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you, you half expect Jamel, Jamel Hill to somehow be now championed and, 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 and emerge ultimately with some product attached to her. Uh, so there's an almost infinite resiliency to the way our system absorbs these kinds of things. I do believe that it's an interesting new moment and that the force field, the, the, the vectors of force that are involved are numerous and, and complicated. For Donald Trump, it's very straightforward. This is, uh, this is offensive and he as always appeals directly to hardcore supporters who believe exactly as he does. But you can see that the NFL considers it way more complicated. Look what's become of Kaepernick's uh, uh, protest. Look at the con- very complex choreography of what has gone on in recent weeks. You have some players kneeling. Other players stand but they put a hand on the shoulder of the people kneeling. Some owners come out and they lock arms of the players but have their hand over their heart. I mean, it's kabuki football theater. You can't figure this stuff out. In order to try to figure it out, what you're doing is charting a whole bunch of very consciously blurred positions that are designed you know, to cover people's butts <laughs> in all eventualities and all directions at once. That's part of what makes it so, so interesting a situation, I think. Um, I don't know. Do you have one, one more thing you want I to guess say about this? I, I look forward to reading a piece by Jamel Hill rather than a tweet. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. That I mean, and Rand kind of alluded to this at the beginning. People don't know where they are when they're on Twitter, even unto this day. And even a young media savvy person like Jamel Hill, I think may there's a way in which people kind of get in this Twitter bubble, right? You know, mm-hmm. and they just think, okay, so I'm tweeting right now, and I'll just I'm going to keep developing my thoughts. <laughs> 
here on Twitter. And you know what? You're not developing your thoughts. You're publishing your thoughts. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and I, I also think that, you know, the – uh, the president was also telling people to boycott the NFL, and I think that she was responding as well, saying boycott. You know, on the other side, like two can play at this game, and um, and then you're right, she she became the news because of who she is versus you know the president kind of gets a pass on yeah. On, uh, I mean, if that if I were Jamel Hill, that part would bother me. That the president mm-hmm. can say anything right. he wants to on Twitter, whether he means it or not, whether he intends it to be carried through mm-hmm. or not, it doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. But if you're everybody else, and especially if you're Jamel Hill, no, I mean they lower the boom on you. Because his sponsors or, never his sponsors never say no. Yeah. <laughs> or right. or Rose McGowan. So so yeah. So so uh, Rose McGowan was uh, yeah. uh, banned for uh, twelve hours this week on, on Twitter as a result of the Harvey Weinstein thing. Although I don't know. Before we launch into this, and I, I I'm prepared by the way to be shouted down about this, or I prefer to be eased down, but you can shout me down if you want to. I mean, I, I have been troubled. For, I look at news aggregators to kind of get myself going in the day. So memorandums are the really great one, kind of gets you, gives you a sense of what is being covered, you know, and how it's being covered, how much it's being covered. And so every day for the last seven or eight days, I go on memorandum and I can see that there are 20, 30 stories at major publishing outlets and stories that are being linked to by other outfits, all about this Harvey Weinstein thing, which we talked about last Friday. And I don't I don't minimize it. I mean, it absolutely is a big story. It's an important story. It's a placeholder for all of the the closeted, toxic treatment of uh, of women that's gone on in Hollywood and lots of other places for ages and ages. I, I don't. But I, I, it's sort of turned into Kate. To me, it's turned into a story about well, what does you know what does Oliver Stone think about this? Well, what does Donna, Donna Karen think about this? Well, what do the twenty famous people think about what Donna Karen thinks about this? And you know, I don't know. <laughs> We're on the brink of nuclear war <laughs> with North Korea, and Puerto Rico is about to have this cascading health crisis. And I, I feel like this thing is eating up an awful lot of oxygen all of a sudden. But tell me, I'm wrong. I might be wrong. Well, you know, I, I, I think the Harvey Weinstein has webs or tentacles or whatever, and I think uh, there are more stories that are going to come out about more people. Uh, I do think that we need to be paying more attention to what's happening in in Puerto Rico and uh, in the Virgin Islands and the rest of the Caribbean. And I, I think that our – we're too um, – it's like we follow the shiny things all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to really uh, consciously pay more attention to things we say that we're concerned about, such as what's going on in Puerto Rico, where certainly um, uh, the the military has been there all along. So what did take them so long? So there's a group of women who are, among other things, now threatening to boycott Twitter. See, it's Boycott Week <laughs> uh, because Rose McGowan was, uh, was – uh, temporarily suspended. This was mainly because of a tweet that had a screenshot in it that had yeah, personal that a phone personal phone number. number. Yeah, but you can also take that tweet down and just. Yeah, I mean, the administrators of Twitter can take that down and just keep moving. I guess the decision makers weren't around at that moment. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I'm finding it hard to worry too much about this, but there are people who very see it another, as another kind of silencing. I, I think that. I mean, backing up for a second. I mean, I think two things are driving why this is caught fire in the news. I think number one. Um, well, there's kind of three things. I'll try to go quickly. Number one, we're we're basically almost exactly a year from Access Hollywood, mm-hmm. so this is literally another uh, you know issue of 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 a you know powerful man treating women horribly. Um, you know, I think that 
so that's kind of is driving a lot of this. The right is also pushing this because they're saying, "Ha ha!" It's the you know the kind of whataboutism, right? It's mm-hmm. you, you you guys do this too, and it's like yes, but you know the world is casting him down from his height rather than electing him president. But anyways, um, you know, and I think that. I think that maybe, uh, you know, and I think that Samantha B, you know, on her show this week kind of said, you know, this is maybe an inflection point where like we're, this is it. This is we're, we're done. Hollywood, you know, old Hollywood is dead after this point. You know, the, the, the king has fallen and everyone who's done this in the past or is thinking of doing this in the future is on notice that that this is it. This is just the beginning of the end of how Hollywood does that. Hmm. That's, a, so. that's a good argument. That's a, okay, Rand, I can give you 60 seconds and then I have to go to a right. So to, just to go back to what you said, I do think there is a surprising and somewhat mysterious provincialism that's created by the mass focus on, <clears throat> on the day's topics. I was most interested in the notion that a 12-hour uh, ban from Twitter constitutes uh, a serious punishment. Um, I first thought that was a slap in the wrist, but then I thought, you know what? People check in so constantly that to be off for 12 hours constitutes a serious problem for many people. Now, to relate this to what we said earlier, there's a way in which the massive focus on one, two, or three popular topics of the day is part of what's creating the force that is wieldable by people out there like, like Jamel Hill and, and part of what sponsors and networks have to take seriously. This massive wave that constitutes the next three days' attention is about to crash over our heads. So there's, there's a way in which the very provincialism and narrowness that you mentioned, Colin, I think is actually part of what becomes the weapon. All right. Beautifully done. We're going to take a break. Some people are going to come on. They're going to talk to you about pledging and supporting. And if you do that now, you're saying you really value in particular the kind of conversation we're having right now and the value of having great conversationalists like Rand Richards Cooper and Kate Russian and Pedro Soto on. So please do pledge with these very nice people you're about to hear from. Mr. Harvey Weinstein, you gotta understand your actions are atrocious and completely out of hand. There are no good excuses. We're here to talk about Blade Runner in 1982, uh, a movie called Blade Runner starring Harrison Ford, directed by Ridley Scott, based on a Philip K. Dick short story or novella or something, uh, which was actually called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, um, splashed up onto the movie screens and not much happened, actually. It was not a commercial success. It was not a critical success. It took a long, I think it was nominated for zero Academy Awards. It took a while before people kind of understood that this really was a bending point in the history of science fiction on movies, that the noir aesthetic and all kinds of interesting searching moral and existential questions could be embedded in a really cool looking movie. (laughs) So uh, it has since then established itself as a real classic. And um, it seems as though um, quite a few years have gone by without anything being done about that. And that's because 35 years have passed. And now here we are with a brand new Blade Runner movie. We all went to see it, Blade Runner 2049. So I think I'm just going to go around the table. I'll start with you, Pedro. And just, I mean, in a nutshell, how are you feeling about this movie? I, I loved it. Um, now it's a, with a giant caveat. Um, that I don't think it's for everyone, and I can see why it did how it did in the theater. But um, just for for me, for what this movie was, um, as this one little Blade Runner movie, it's, you know, devoid of all other context, I love the movie. 
Um, so I watched it, you know, two hours and 42 minutes, I think, went by. And, and every moment I, I wasn't, you know, looking at my watch. I was just watching this really cool experience. Wait till we get to the guy with back problems and see if two hours and 42 minutes <laughs> flew by for him. But, Kate, actually, you're up next. Well, I do not fit the target demographic for this movie. And um, despite the what I saw as an interesting question about uh, whether or not the, the Blade Runner can have a soul, I found my experience spoiled by the narrow and ridiculously sexualized representations of women. Interesting. I want to come back to that. I mean, I know I get what you're saying, but I want to come back to it. Uh, all right. And Rand? I had the kind of reaction that's probably the least favorable one uh, for you know for a movie critic, and, and that was sort of about a about – a, you, you want to either really love something or really dislike something, and both of those responses – are a nice jumping off point for, for thinking and writing about a movie. But if your, your response is, my response to this film was about a notch and a half above, eh. and uh, so I, I, and I, was, I was ambivalent about it. There are things that I liked and the things that I liked really had to do with certain continuities, visual and cinematographic continuities with the first one. So, so for me, part of the, uh, the task of sorting out what I think about the second film is looking back to the first one, considering what's happened in the in the thirty five years since then, and and perhaps raising the question, Colin, as you did an email of the the problems of sequels sequels of of successful movies, the problems they have in in trying to <laughs> replicate and trying to be replic replicant uh, successes, uh, and I and I think for reasons I'd be happy to explain. I, I don't think this one quite makes it. As we talk about this, we're uh, trying. I mean, we discussed via email. Whether there are spoilers, there are if you get deep enough into the two-hour and 40-minute movie, some things that could be spoiled and we will not spoil them for you. There are other things that kind of constitute the premise of this, certainly things that we can tell you uh, because they're right at the beginning of the movie. Ryan Gosling uh, plays uh, now a Blade Runner. A Blade Runner is a person who seeks out um, replicants, replicants. Uh, rogue replicants. Rogue replicants, OK. <laughs> so rogue replicants. So And replicants are basically engineered human beings. They look like human beings. They have m most of the vital functions of human beings, but they are not human beings. They don't. Uh, they are made, not born, to use the uh, f reverse of the phrase that recurs a few times during the movie. And as such, memories they have, things that we maybe uh, associate with the notion of having an identity or a soul or a consciousness uh, have been implanted in many cases into them as opposed to experienced. So um, Ryan Gosling is sent to terminate uh, a rogue replicant, uh, which is something Blade Runners do, uh, and the story kind of unfolds from there. So, you know, I mean, Pedro, uh, because you are considerably younger than some of us, um, <laughs> so I, so 1982. I don't know how old you were in 1982. I touched Blade Runner when it came out. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, in many ways, I'm wondering if one of the reasons you like this movie is maybe you're a little bit more open to fiddling around with the formula. Because one of the things that Denis Denis Villeneuve, I practiced <laughs> saying this and I didn't do it right, but uh, the new director of this movie, I, he's clearly decided he's just not going to make the same movie. He's going to do something different. Yeah. Uh, well. But he hewed so closely to the aesthetic mm -hmm. and the sound and the pacing and the, you know, the world building. Um, 
there's a lot that's the same. I don't know. I might disagree a little bit on that, um, or I'd like to hear you expound on what you felt was different. I, I, well, yeah, I, I mean, if, if t- there's time, I don't know if anybody <laughs> yeah. cares what I think was different. Um, so maybe we'll come back to that. But so, Kate, I want to talk about women in this movie. So I think this is something I do see a little bit differently, although I totally get what you're saying. The women are sexualized. The women are, um, you know, shown naked mm-hmm. more often than men are shown naked, which I think is something close to never. Um, and, on the other hand, there's sort of these. I, I found the women women in this movie a lot more interesting. There's a character named There's a character named character named Love who is not interesting, uh, and there's a character named Joy. As Jonathan McNichol is pointing out, there's a giant naked woman for close to no reason. Uh, I can't deny that. So Joy is this character who is you know, uh, some kind of hologramic consciousness uh, with, uh, and, and has a relationship with the Ryan Gosling character. I thought she was, in many respects, the most interesting thing in the movie. And and some of the other female characters, uh, Robin Wright has kind of an interesting kind of hard-boiled character that she plays. There's also a woman, we can't say much of, very much about her, but she lives in a bubble because of uh, immune deficiencies. And she designs memories to be implanted into replicants. I also thought she was a terrific character played by a really interesting actress. I don't know. I'm, I wasn't t- maybe as dissatisfied with the women's roles as you were. Yeah, I I was totally taken out of the movie by Joy's representation as this kind of Siri slash Stepford wife hologram. And uh, there's this little sequence where she goes through this series of of costume changes and it just seemed like a a, a Barbie sex bot with uh, different outfits, whatever outfit you want. And that just took me totally out of the, the movie. I would say that the representations of the women in the movie came down to the, to the standard Madonna prostitute witch. And maybe that's not uh, maybe that's not so surprising in Harvey Weinstein's Hollywood. Yeah. All right, uh, hard to argue with that. Um, uh, before we go to Rand, uh, I want to uh, play you a little of this. Let me see if I can set this up. What are the things that Ryan Gosling eventually has to do on this peculiar quest on which he finds himself is to go to an orphanage, uh, and an orphanage that is the 2049 equivalent of one of Dickens's uh, orphanages. And, and you'll hear him. You. I think you only hear Ryan speak once. The main voice you hear, I believe, is the actor who plays Morgan uh, in The Walking Dead, uh, who is the Fagin or, or whatever of this orphanage. The nickel is for the colonial ships, closest any of them or any of us is going to get to that grand life off world. So come on now. What sort do you have in mind? I got all kinds. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not buying. No, no, no. This is just my game, and I play it fair. No, no. I mean, bigger than you. Bigger than you were trying to shut me down. Bigger than you, and they were, they were men at that. Okay, uh, Rand, I want you to actually talk about whatever you want to talk about vis-a-vis this. I want to uh, come back to Pedro in a second just about the sound of this movie because Pedro's a sound guy. Well, um, I hadn't seen Blade Runner, the original, in many, many years, probably since since it came out. So I, I did go back and look. 
and and see it again. I, I, I thought it stood up very well, and I was I was struck by um, how much visual stuff, how much atmosphere is placed upon a really barely existent plot. One of the reasons they didn't do well when it came out and one thing that original critics noticed was that it was kind of slow moving. It didn't tell much of a story. The LA Times reviewer called it Blade Creeper. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and But people began to, to appreciate uh, just, just how rich and, and visually alluring the environment, uh, the, the look uh, and feel of the film was. It, it really perfectly merged noir and, uh, and, and science fiction uh, so that, you know, it, it, the whole film with the exception of the penultimate scene was shot entirely at night. It was really the darkest and most dismal, uh, the, the, the glare of neon, all of these tropes of noir film, the glare of neon uh, uh, off, of, off of a wet street um, were, were combined all these paradoxical opposites were combined that in a way that created what became sort of the default look of dystopian futurism. The combination of super high tech with neglected, abandoned and corrupted uh, settings. So it combined past and future in if not novel, then pretty new and really, really cool ways. So uh, some reviewer, it might have been Richard Corliss, Say, said uh, when he reviewed the film originally, he's a great appreciator of the original Blade Runner, when he, when he said, he mused out loud, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is the here. And uh, instead of a strong storyline, what you had, I thought very interestingly, was this, this kind of motif in which a very a, a surprising uh, and, and, and mournful and ultimately almost Wagnerian sense of humanity was placed very unexpectedly at, at the very feet of these robots, of these replicants. And this question of what constitutes our humanity and what constitutes the possible theoretical humanity of machines. It was that last scene in the original Blade Runner with Rutger Hauer as, as the replicant, Roy Batty, howl, stripped down to sort of a loincloth and howling across the, the roof surrounded by gargoyles. The, well, the famous tears in rain tears, speech. Yeah. Right, the tears in rain. I mean, the, that was a stunningly and really surprisingly poetic moment. It was the great moment in the film. In my view, the second film, you can track through scene after scene and, and uh, that really do succeed in, in giving us a brand of a, a sense of sort of visual post-apocalyptic annihilation that's awesome. That every time I loved something in this movie, it was generally when we were seeing a huge panorama from above, from his ship. When I liked it way less was usually when we were focusing on two or three people in a room with increasingly hackneyed themes of villainy that were pushing the story way beyond what the original one did. So for me, the original one was was all about a very certain environment, look and feel. And, and, and the second one kind of did its own cool version of that, but then tried to do more. So Pedro, and you are a great student of some of the technical aspects of filmmaking. Um, this, this movie is going to be a strong contender for cinematography. Roger Deakins, who I think has been nominated for Oscars 13 times and never won one, despite the fact that he really is, you know, now one of the shapers of the, in ways that Rand's describing, uh, of our modern cinema aesthetic. Uh, he's going to be a, a big name come Oscar time. And, and the sound of this movie, we heard it a little bit in that orphanage clip, and it's unrelenting, the sound of this movie. Um, and it'll either drive you crazy or really impress you. Yeah, I, I saw this in uh, 2D IMAX. Um, when and the sound was literally cranked up to eleven, and I felt it was, 
it's intentional. And it is. It, it really um, – it gets uncomfortable. I actually have to cover my ears a little bit a few times. Um, but I think the fact that this that, – that pounding sound just kind of drives through the movie is – it's almost like another character uh, on on screen or in your ears. Um, and so, I mean, I love the the soundtrack itself. I love the kind of kind of uh, you know post Vangelis thirty years later uh, take on it. Um, like it was Hans Zimmer, right? Yeah. Who who kind of came in at the last minute and uh, and did this. And um, but I think that the the decision to kind of amp up the sound to kind of make things uncomfortable definitely hmm. helps. It, it makes definitely makes the movie uh, a different kind of beast mm-hmm. than something that has. You know, where where like the loud is explosions, you know, or the loud is this. The loud is never explosions or or, or anything. The loud is just this 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 sound, this pulsing sound. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm so glad I didn't see it in IMAX 2D for that very reason. Yeah. That sound is a little bit more tolerable. <laughs> I saw, it, saw it in three. In three? Oh, wow. All right. yeah. So Kate, I mean, so granting the point that the sexual politics and the sexual expression of this movie is uh, is offensive. Uh, it was offensive to you and, and one could very easily understand why. Is there any there, there uh, after that? I mean, this is very much uh, another movie about the whole question of what it means, as Rand says, to be human, to be conscious, to have parents. There are all kinds of you know familiar themes in there. Are any of them laid out in a way that, that worked for you? Yeah. You know, the, the, the movie was interesting to me on that level about what constitutes a human and what does it mean to have a soul and what is our relationship to nature and all that. But I, I still have to say that, you know, we can't forget that the replicants were slaves and that the Blade Runner – is essentially a slave catcher. Uh, And the first thing he says to the fugitive replicant that he finds is, don't make me shoot you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I feel it, it, there's a romanticization. And with all the technical uh, magnificence of the film, all the talent, all the money, I'm saying, is that all there is? can't do a little better around women mm-hmm. or or imagining, say, black people in the future. Yeah. So we're almost out of time here. I want to give uh, Rand one more chance to comment here. Just because the other thing this movie does, I joked in the emails that it seemed like they called David Brooks in as a script doctor at the last minute. It kind of wears a certain undergraduate familiarity with the, the humanities uh, on its <laughs> sleeves. So there are uh, evocations of Kafka. Uh, for some reason or other, Pale Fire by Nabokov uh, plays this huge role in there. There are complex biblical allusions, as there were also in, in the original Blade Runner. I don't know. Is there any there, there, Rand? Is there anything to uh, uh, all the stuff it tries to hint at? You know, what I found, what I found it, the, the, the Nabokov stuff would take way too long to untangle here. But uh, when, when uh, Gosling's character is subjected to this test to, to see whether he's been sufficiently traumatized to be taken out of service, he has to recite this sequence of lines that's quite cryptic. And they turn out to be lines from Nabokov's novel, Pale Fire from the poem within that novel. Now, if you go through this, I mean, it would take 10 minutes to explicate this. It's fascinating. Its relationship to the film is highly problematic. Um, interesting to speculate about. The passage has to do with mortality and, and, and mortality and machinery is obviously a big motif of this. But what I found, the, to me, the, the hints 
in the film were less literary, but I find myself thinking about the many films that have come in the 30 years since the original Blade Runner that were in a sense, if not spawned, at least influenced by it. And, and, and these are films you know, as various as, as Terminator, uh, Brazil, AI, obviously, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with the memory implants, Minority Report, The Very Great Children of Men, which I would recommend anyone, uh, Alfonso Cuaron's film. And, and, and the fact of the 30 years and, and this whole large field of films creates a sort of you-can't-go-home-again reality for a movie like this. It's, it's going to make a sequel that tries to connect us back to its original self and in some sense extend and capitalize on it. But, but nothing that it can do is anywhere near as novel – because of its own success in in creating other things. So Maybe that's why they have to buzz so loudly in your ears <laughs> so you won't think about that. All yeah. right. We have to take a break here so the panel will have time also to recommend some things to you. So let's do that. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. A pigeon on the shoulder of Kai Rizdal. I watched sea beams glitter on the bare stomach of Harvey Weinstein. Okay, I just got a little sick in my mouth. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain, unless you buy special goggles that collect your tears with a monthly pledge of $20 or more. Time to do the credits. Today's show was produced by J5189Pants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish has done questionable things. Our intern, Evan, has been sent to the off-world colony. The part of Bill Curry was played by Daryl Hanna. We'll be back on Monday with news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. <laughs> right. So there's your Tears and Rain speech um, and uh, some great noir music, too. Uh, all right. So we're going to recommend some things. Uh, we'll start out with you, Pedro Soto. Um, this weekend in New Haven is the continuation of Citywide Open Studios. And this one's going to be pretty cool. Uh, it is at the Goff Street Armory, where they take over a basically vacant uh, building that the city now owns. And there will be a whole plethora of artists doing some pretty cool and kinetic I believe, this year as well, things. So um, you can look it up, uh, and it, it's happening the entire month of October all over New Haven, and it's always a treat. So, All right. That's great. Open studios in New Haven at the Gulf Street Ar- Ar- Armory. What have you got for us, Kate Russian? All right. I'm going to endorse my jazz and poetry project with Nat Reeves' State of Emergency at South Congregational Church in Granby, and that's Sunday afternoon, October 22nd at 4 o'clock, and it's free, fab- fabulous musicians. And I've got to endorse The Parable of the Sower by uh, Octavia Butler, and there is a new opera based on that story by Bernice Johnson Reagan and Toshi Reagan doing the music and lyrics, and it features a black woman hero. And finally, I have got to speak out on behalf of the great people who staff adult medical daycare. They give respite to uh, the caregivers, and they give 
sense of community and purpose to the clients. All right. Rand Richards Cooper, what have you got for us? I'm going to stick with film and uh, recommend two things. First is something that is aired already but easily findable, and that was last week's HBO documentary on Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's terrific in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, it goes through his films and really forces you to decide whether you consider him a great filmmaker in the in sort of the full artist sense or not. And it, and it sort of forces you to come to terms with your own values. Second, it, it shows what happened with really the first generation of kids who grew up making movies as fun at home. And he – he was a precociously skilled genius, you know, who was cranking out films in the 1950s as a little kid. It's fascinating, uh, and 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 uh, America's greatest film critic, David Edelstein, he is is in, uh, is in there a lot. The second thing is uh, actually prospective, and that's this weekend at Real Artways is showing Frederick Wiseman's documentary Ex Libris, which is about the New York Public Library. Frederick Wiseman is is one of America's greatest documentary filmmakers, probably arguably the greatest, but he sort of flies semi under the radar and a lot of people who who might well know about him don't know about him. So go to Real Artways, watch Ex Libris, a, a love song to the book. I can maybe quickly endorse, if you want that noir aesthetic carried on in yet another way, Rand read a great list of films. I would also recommend the modern version of Battlestar Galactica, whose yes. creators actually cite uh, who, who cite the original Blade Runner as an inspiration. You have to, I mean, find it in a box set or something like that. It would probably be kind of expensive, but it's really, really, really good, and it's good in a lot of the ways that Blade Runner is good. All right, that's all we have time for. Thanks to Rand and to Kate and to Pedro. 